Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. James and Mitchell, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you very much. Mitchell, you're probably wondering what the hell you've got yourself into. (laughs) Definitely. Potentially serious podcast talking about ocean-related issues. The first thing I want to know is, where are you? We're at Southern Cross here. Oh, it's meaning where are you? It looks like you're in a cupboard. At the oh, this is Mitch's <laughs> office. Yeah, it's the bigger of the two office choices. Mine oh, being smaller. So. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're aware of this, James. You're almost like a bit of a celebrity because you're the first guest we've actually had twice in the same season. Oh, really? So we had you on episode five, I think, of this season, and he's back on already. The masses have spoken. They, they just can't get enough of you. But... Uh, <laughs> If anyone's missed that episode, I encourage you to listen to it. It was James was on talking about blue carbon accounting. But look, there's been a whole bunch of shenanigans going down in your neck of the woods. Before we get stuck into the um, the flooding dramas around Lismore, Mitchell, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? So you've somehow got yourself in cahoots with this Dr. James Sippo, and you're a PhD yourself. But for the listeners who might not be familiar with you, what do you do? I've known Jimmy for years. We studied together. Yeah, we ended up doing our PhD at similar times, and now we're working together, which is so it's kind of been a bit of a funny chain of events that's got us here. We've hung out a lot in some pretty interesting environments, a lot of time in mangroves, and now we're both working on rivers. There's a bit of a bromance. A bit of a bromance, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy aspires to have a bromance with me, but I think it's more like, a, you know, following me around, you know, like yeah. a puppy with well, a big dog, you know what I mean? You, you wish, mate. You wish. Am I right in saying you got your office or where you're calling from is in Lismore? Yeah. You talk about interesting environments. Lismore has certainly been an interesting environment this year. Late February, early March, the heavens opened and you guys were basically ground zero. Tell us about that whole period. It was an experience. So I've been living near Lismore most of my life and a lot of my close friends live right on the river and they're clued on. I feel like I know the river very well. Leading up to it, everyone was watching the river closely because the ground was saturated and we just had, it had been a lot of rain for a long time. And we hadn't had a big flood since 2017. Everyone was feeling the vibe that there was a flood coming. But in saying that, no one could have predicted what actually occurred. The night of the flood, I was checking the river heights until about 9.30, which at 9.30, it was actually looking like it was going to plateau at around 10 metres above average river depth. And 
it was raining hard at that point, but I thought, okay, look, it's not going to be too bad. So I crashed out. And then at about five, I woke up and just checked it again because it was bucketing down. And at five, it was at 14 meters, 14 and a half even, and still going up. And the moment I saw that, it just like took the breath out of my lungs. Like just seeing a number and then going, oh, wow, that means that house is on. Oh, that means my mate, yeah. you know, and then I just wow. was on, like trying to contact people and it was crazy. The people I could get in contact with were the people that were safe and they were in contact with partners left behind who were trying to lift things and save things. And I managed to get in touch with a friend just as he was mid-panic attack trying to climb out his roof into a wobbly oh canoe right on the edge of the river. He had built a loft off his roof and the water was coming into that. Wow. And just no idea of when it would stop. It was just such a next level event. When we say a significant event and significant events seem to be happening more and more, how much rain did come down in those days before the, the flood event? Do you, do you have any indication? We can go to Google. I was over a metre. In yeah. some parts of the catchment had over a metre of rain. Wow. For everyone listening to that, a metre of water, where I am right now in Wanaka, the average annual rainfall is about 300 millimetres. <laughs> That's all we get here in a year, and you guys are getting that in a couple of days. It's just an insane amount of water to come down. Not only was it an insane amount of water for one particular event, but we'd had rain for months in the lead-up to this event. This sort of perfect storm of events leading up to this one extreme event. Everything was already totally saturated, and then you go and throw this event where we've got like nearly a, well over a metre in some parts of rain. Usually it happens in sort of pockets of the catchment, but in this event it happened throughout the whole catchment, which was you know, most of it anyway. Mitch, what about you? What were you doing? What were you up to? I was actually on holidays down on the south coast the week earlier. And on the Sunday night, I, I was catching up with some friends in Crescent Head. And I knew what was happening, you know, and I, I was like Jimmy too. I was checking the levels and the weather and whatnot. And I, I knew what was happening. But then I woke up to a phone call from another mate who grew up in Lismore. At about six o'clock in the morning, he goes, mate, have you seen what's happening? They need people with boats. And I had my, my tinny with me. Well, I wrote, I'll, I'll head up now. So I just jumped in the car and drove straight up to Lismore put the boat in, and I just could not believe, one, where I was able to launch the boat. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where was that? In the street? <laughs> where, uh, on the hill? This lady comes up to me and goes, oh, can you take me to the Cathcart Street? I've, I'll look after disabled people. There's a few people in the house there that I need to go and get, and I've gone, right, yeah, jump in. And, like, I grew up in this so I know where Cathcart Street is, but when I was driving around, I just had no idea where I was. And it was about the same time when Putin started bombing Ukraine, and I was just thinking... Is this it? Is this it? This is hectic here. I couldn't imagine what it would be like in a war zone. Wow. Yeah. Well, because they do say natural events are like a war zone. Jimmy, when you were talking about before of of waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning and seeing what 14 metres meant, the hairs of my arm stood up. I was like, wow, because you know what's happening and what that actually means, and you were right there on the cold front. It's an extraordinary event. So you basically... Put the boat in, you go, right, I come, I'm going to help you. To me, that sounds like the start of a really, really long day for you fellas. The amount of water that was moving around and through the city, you know, there was waves in sections, there was super strong currents, and there was just boats everywhere, just these punters out in whatever boat they had, and they were just all totally jam-packed. Well, the people didn't drown, basically, or people, you know, all boats didn't overturn, or more people didn't lose their lives. It was so sketchy what was going on. The amount of effort from the community was was incredible because I was out on a small, dodgy boat as well, boating around, and 
there was so many people just helping everyone. You couldn't go anywhere. Like I constantly had, you know, my friends in mind, I need to get from A to B to get someone something. But I could never actually get there without stopping, picking up someone, taking them to a random thing, dropping off, you know, a dog somewhere. And everyone was doing it. Everyone was helping everyone. And there was just kind of real equality in a way. Yeah. It was an amazing community event. And it was was actually people from the broader Northern Rivers as well. I've been living in Lennox Head for the last sort of 10 to 12 years. And when you're out there in your boat, you saw so many faces that were driven up from Ballina or or Lennox. They're They're out there on their jet skis, just ripping around, picking up, helping out wherever they could. In terms of describing visually, I guess, for the listeners, you're in the middle of Lismore. How high is the water? If you're in the city, are you? is it above the roof? How high was it? One of the scenes um, when I was going down, and what I couldn't believe the first time I saw this was that people were getting the power lines and grabbing onto them, picking them up so they didn't take their heads off when they were going through them with their boats. Like going up. Wow. Power lines. <laughs> Uh, oh. We should put this in a bit of context. So we've got a bit of an international audience and people might not realise that Lismore is northern New South Wales and we talk about a metre falling across the catchment. But Lismore is essentially on the Wilsons River and it is a you know, it's a reasonably well-populated area and they're not immune to flooding. Like to James's point before, they sort of have a fairly strong awareness of the river dynamics, etc. But gee whiz, you've got these little punt boats, you know, little, you'd say dodgy boats or canoes the river's not exactly static. I'm guessing there's some significantly high-flowing waters, plus with a whole bunch of debris in there. I'm, I'm thinking cars, trees, cows, all that sort of stuff. How dangerous is that just by being in that environment? And then obviously, what are you trying to do? Like, Are you just trying to get people from to higher ground? Is that the general plan? At the start, but then also a lot of people committed to their houses so going back, as the water started dropping over the coming days, it was still where it would have been at a major flood any other time. You're getting people food, you're starting to organise logistics, people trying to get back to their house to salvage anything they can because they left in the middle of the night. The day of the actual event when it was actually a, you know rescuing people, now in the cavity underneath their roof, so people were ripping off roof panels or tiles or sheets wow. of metal to get people that were in their roofs into their boats. And some of the stories were absolutely amazing. I mean, some mates that had jet skis that could get to parts of the town where I couldn't get to or where a lot of people couldn't get to because the flows were so strong. I really wish someone makes a documentary about it all because it was remarkable that on what they did to save these people. People that have lived in Lismore for decades, you know, they're set up for floods. They accept floods. They know that these things occur and, they, you know, they've got their kind of system when a flood comes. But this one... When you were picking up these people in their boats, these hardened, lose more people that have been through flood after flood after flood, mm. they were shell-shocked. They couldn't say anything. They were just wow. blown away on how quick this water come up and how high it went. Let's just break this down to a time zone. So, Mitch, you have jumped in your car at 6 a.m. from where were you, Lennox? At what time did you get to Lismore? I was in Crescent Head. I left Creso at about 6.30 in the morning and I put the boat in at Lismore at about 1.30 in the afternoon. I actually ripped a hole in my boat or I reopened a, an old hole because I obviously hit something. So I was only out there for a few hours before that happened. Then I had to come back. If I was on the water for maybe two or three hours, the height that the water level rose was actually quite a lot and the force of the water was increasing heaps during that time. Oh, wow. Like to the wow. point where there was waves in sections, you know, the, from the currents. Wow. Wow. This is to describe your boat. It's a tinny. It's, it's a three-metre tinny. <laughs> it's, uh, it's got a 15 on the back. I was struggling. It was super knifey. So when you're in it by yourself, you can quite easily roll the thing, you know. Like, you had to be really wow. careful. Oh. 
Wow. You know, everyone was looking out for each other. You know, I saw mates that were out there with their boats and they're going, mate, it's super dodgy there, just wait here. So what people would do, people with the powerful boats or jet skis would go and get people from way out of town on the other side of the river, basically, because they could cross the river and that's where the, yeah. the water was flowing the strongest. Yeah, yeah. They would bring people back to the bridge and then people would get off their boat or off the jet ski, walk across the bridge and then... Everyone else with the smaller boats, or they're not as powerful boats, was sitting on the other side of the bridge, and we'd ferry them from there to the dry ground. Wow. Jimmy, what about you, mate? So what time did you hit the water, and tell us a bit more about your day? I couldn't actually get to Lismore, so I spent that day driving around trying to get there. Where I was, I was the flood just kept coming up. I couldn't make it close enough to get in. And then so the next morning I managed to get in, so the water had, was still over one and a half metre over the floor height of most of the houses. Wow. Wow. Where it got to on my friend's house, um, he left the house in the middle of the night, packed everything on in boxes and chucked it on the top of the roof, and then it washed off his roof in the night. Wow. Wow. He paddled out of there with his pregnant partner and two-year-old baby. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah, I managed to get in the next morning, find those guys who'd, just before his phone died, he sent me a pin of where he was and I managed to get there and then get a boat and get in from another side of town and then from then on basically we worked like two weeks straight like it was the first couple of days we're just ferrying people as the waters came down you know you started hitting fences and stuff the logistics got harder and harder then there was this awkward in between period where everything was flooded but it was only like a meter deep so you couldn't really boat but you couldn't walk and then Waters came down and everyone was just straight into their houses and we just spent their yeah, weeks shoveling mud, throwing out mattresses full of stuff, people's whole lives, emptying people's personal stuff while they watched it. It was just full on. So the cleanup was insane and the amount of resources from the whole region were just incredible. Where I was driving by a place that would um, provide thousands of free meals a day and I'd just stop in, get a tray of 200 meals, chuck it in the car, drive in with a crew of people from the coast who were keen and we just rock up at a house, get everyone, get the free food, just work like nuts, covered in mud, do it all again the next day. And everyone was doing it. So that's an interesting point that I'm sure we're going to bring up. When we say everyone was doing it, what about the government support and the government response? Because this is a highly publicised situation and the government that was in charge is actually not in charge now, so we can say whatever the hell we want. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry, the state government's still in charge. But from you guys on the ground, it basically help was very, very slow to get to these guys. And and, and I'll let them explain. Uh, it wasn't actually all over the news. They were more At the same time, rest in peace, Shane Warne died. But I'd say Australia were probably a little bit more concerned with Shane Warne than the floods. And I do know I've got a lot of friends up there. There was a massive outcry on social media going, you know, Lara Bingle, where the bloody hell are you? So what was it like on the ground? And give us your views on it. And you can't get sued. We've got a disclaimer on the bottom of our... <laughs> well, sorry. Well, hopefully we can't. We need to recognise that these gentlemen are often reliant on research grants yeah, that yeah. government yeah, funded. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe their views may not be representative... Their personal views. Of, personal their, views. of their views, but maybe an indication of the vibe from yeah, the general the vibe, public. Vibe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many boats were out on the river that day. There would have been hundreds of boats and these were just regular punters taking their own boats risking their own lives too risking their own lives to rescue these people and 
if that wouldn't have happened, heaps of people would have died. Under-resourced is the word. It was also such an unforeseeable event. So I guess the, the predictions, the rainfall predictions, the flood predictions the night before were that it would reach major. No one was thinking this was going to be anything like what it was. And that is including the Bureau of Meteorology. Like the forecasts were way off what happened. SES was so undergunned. Everyone was undergunned. I mean, this kind of links to the whole chaos of climate change because if you look two years earlier, the issue was fire and every resource was getting focused on fire because the whole country was burning. And that's what I think we're facing with climate change is that we're getting these extremes that are not just flood there all extremes are happening you know more and more we're getting extreme erosion events extreme floods extreme fires and the resources are spread thin yeah and look there's some really key words in there like unforeseeable or often here unprecedented when it comes to these flooding events or fire events but we hear those terms time and time again that was a, a really common term in the 2011 floods in southeast Queensland when a whole bunch of people died. Intensity, frequency, duration, you know, analyses were off the charts. They're talking about one in a thousand events, one in 2,000 year event type thing. And my point is, whilst they might be a very infrequent and unusual, you can actually predict the consequences of these extreme events. When, it, when we talk about flooding, we, we do talk about one in 100, one in 2,000, whatever, but we also have probable maximal flood and you can essentially plan for something that is off the charts and you can see the consequences of that wouldn't hurt to actually take a precautionary approach when it comes to some of these extreme events. But obviously, to your point, James, we are seeing these extreme events seemingly becoming more and more frequent. You talk about the floods, uh, obviously, uh, just in more recent times, the fires, you know, two or three years before that. And then prior to that, we went through the millennium drought. And Australia is, to quote, I think it is uh, Dorothy McKellar, we're a land of uh, droughts and flooding rains and obviously fires. We do need to recognise that this is just almost the status quo, but this this situation is becoming exacerbated by climate change. I just I'm just keen to get your thoughts on obviously working with the community and shoveling mud out of their houses and throwing mattresses into the street, and obviously lives have been often ruined, businesses completely decimated, and probably not for the first time. What's the vibe in relation to the community's perceptions in terms of you talking about government action in terms of the response, but what about just general? impressions around the severity of these events and the link between climate change and these events. Are the community saying, look, this is just getting ridiculous. It's ruining our lives. We need to do something about climate change or is it just a case of, oh, no, this is usual? Everyone's individual response is determined by how traumatic the flood was for them. So some people who were affected very badly but were calm and comfortable in it are rebuilding confidently and other people who were affected a lot less are done they're not they don't want to set a foot in the house again so that's one thing i think one question hanging there is you know how likely is that to happen again and we don't have a black and white answer you know so in a way at my initial response was i felt that it was very unlikely that a flood that magnitude would happen again in the next decade digging through ipcc data on climate change and what the projections are say for floods so by the end of the century we could expect what was a one in a hundred year flood event to be a one in 10 year flood event and what is a one in a thousand year which is probably more like this was to be one in a hundred so you know my house that i had in lismore 
prior to the flood, which amazingly, fortunately for me, I sold. That was sitting at the one in a hundred, and most so many houses are just built to that one in a hundred, and that's what insurance was based off. That becomes a one in ten year flood. It is a different story for Lismore. So for the short term, I think getting on with life, rebuilding, because people actually don't have a choice. Everything they've worked for is tied up in these houses, and that's going to be not just the picture for Lismore, but for so many climate change affected places on earth everything people own is invested in a spot, right? So to say, oh, yeah, that's not the spot anymore, you're destroying individuals' lives and livelihoods. So we can't do that. So I think rebuilding in the short term is, I guess, what's happening because people don't have any other choice. The CBD is slower because businesses do have a choice. Uh, It has to be viable. But homes, people have less choice and they're just doing it. They're just rebuilding. At what point does the insurance companies go... Sorry, you're going to rebuild, but I'm not going to insure you there because it's going to be the issue. You know, people go because it's the Australian dream. You own your own house, and uh, well, if you if you go down that dream and the insurance company doesn't insure you, you well, that's a big risk. So these people are going to what have to start up and move where they've lived their whole lives. I mean, are you starting to see that? I mean, surely there'd be some people that'll be freaked out in Lismore one hour going, you know what, I'm out of here. Is that occurring? Definitely. Wow. Really? There's people that were renting here that, you know, they've just kind of shipped up and left. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy's mates, you've got friends there that they had a house, they love the town, but they've had enough, huh? They're done, yeah. I mean, but there are people who have the opportunity to move. You know, if people have somewhere else that they can go and they're capable and that's what they do. But there's a lot of people that, honestly, their only choice is just to rebuild with what they have. Lismore was booming, you know. People were buying houses at well over half a million on the floodplain and then suddenly now they're worth I don't know what but probably back down to 200,000 you try and sell that and buy somewhere else in the northern rivers which is just inflation central (laughs) but it's amazing how everyone's memories often become very short like the same thing happened in in Brisbane you know the 2011 floods and all the properties along the river had a crash in property prices but two or three years later everyone almost forgets about it and they just go back to normal (laughs) and there's a lot of misplaced faith put in large dams, for example, which you know are great for mitigating uh, small and medium-sized floods. But when it comes to these extreme events, they're basically almost worse than useless. You know, relocating a town isn't a new thing. You know, I think Grantham, it happened 10 years ago. So the people that might not be familiar, Grantham sort of near Toowoomba, devastated with floods um, and the whole town got relocated. I guess that was, I guess, potential option available Maybe, is it? I don't know, for Lismore? It's almost hard to talk about that sort of stuff so after the event. But it's probably a conversation that needs to happen at some point. You know, at what point do you go, we really need to relocate everyone out of this area because it is just so high risk now, recognising the increased uh, likelihood of these significant flood events? It's a tough one. It's a tough one. We ask the hard questions on this show, but yeah. These are people's houses. They've got nowhere else. I mean, where else do you go? You can't just go buy a new house somewhere. (laughs) I think relocation makes sense. But On on the other side, actually, I I was helping out this young family that had just moved up here a couple of months previous to the flood, and they were loving Lismore. They loved the town and asked them what they were going to do, and they said, we're just going to rebuild. We don't want to move away. We love this place. We're just going to make the house, the changes that we're going to make. You know, they're going to use marine ply for the kitchen. I'm flood-proof as much as they can. They want to stay here. They accept that floods are going to happen again, but they're just going to make the appropriate changes to their house to make it easier next time, to make it more flood, more resilient. 
a bit of a key word that's getting around these days. And it's obviously not just a case of the infrastructure and properties, but just the education component, you know, recognising that, okay, if river heights certain, uh, reach a certain level, forecasts, uh, whatever they might be, people just need to get the hell out of town. That might be a potential soft solution. Obviously, it's a lot cheaper than building dams and levees, etc. That's a good point. So, for the people that were actually in Lismore, was there a siren? Was there SAS people? Was there like evacuate, evacuate? Or was it just guys power everyone for themselves? There was SES going around telling people to either evacuate or not. But SES were using bomb data, which is the best data available. And the prediction was way off what was happening. So people were literally being told to, they were going to be fine. Two hours later, water's like coming through the floors. Mm, wow. So we definitely need better catchment scale modeling to be able to accurately predict flood heights. I think one of the challenges is there is that all of the gauges throughout the whole catchment would broken like they just got smashed all the infrastructure just goes down communications are down it's not an easy task to um, accurately manage something like that we've obviously focused on the people and property side of things but the river itself is a ecosystem and there's a whole bunch of sort of i guess particularly water quality impacts associated with flood events like this particularly for this catchment and i know this is where the sort of uh scientists come out of the uh, woodwork and start talking about dissolved oxygen and black water and pH, etc. So can you give people an idea of, I guess, particularly from a water quality and ecological side of things, you know, what's happening during and particularly after the flood event? For two weeks after the flood, we were just helping people. We didn't have to work. (laughs) (laughs) We're employed by Southern Cross University, which is based in Lismore, and they actually gave us 10 days off annual leave. They just said, look, here's 10 days annual leave. Go and help people. That's amazing. Yeah, it was excellent. In 10 days, I I wasn't even thinking about the, you know, you're just helping mates, family, strangers, whoever. But then two weeks after the flood, we got in the boats and we started doing surveys we started doing our jobs finding out what's going on in the river it was amazing i mean we had this boat and we had this kind of canopy on it and the smell from the river decaying organic matter was almost making it dizzy in the boat itself like it was that that strong and there was essentially no oxygen in the water from the mouth of the river which is at ballina that stretched for about 50 kilometers inland well along the river, so up around sort of Bungawalb and there was zero oxygen in the water. And, I mean, that was like that two weeks after and it stayed like that for a good couple of days anyway until oxygen started to sort of improve. How long it was deoxygenated before that, you know, we don't have any data on that, but it could have been a while anyway. And there was, you know, it was a massive fish kill. For the first dead fish were observed about 10 days, nine days after the flood. And how big did these fish kills get? Like how widespread was it? From along the sort of the whole estuary really and then there was, there was a second phase to it which was kind of interesting so after the first phase is what, which is when this black water sort of comes out off the floodplains and just dominates the river and there's no oxygen and that kills all the fish and then as the estuary started to recover so the tides started to infiltrate during the flood tides or the high tides all this fish from the ocean would come in and they'd go up into the estuary but then during the low tides as that tide sort of drained those fish would get stuck in obviously in pockets of this bad water and then they and there was these monsters this massive cod thing up <laughs> it was a, it was like nearly two meters long it was massive mate it's so sad to see this thing 
it's probably like a hundred year old fish. Hundred year old fish. Oh. I'm keen to talk about this black water stuff in particular. And in my dark days as a consultant, one of my first jobs at my old company was the Richmond River Estuary Processor Study. One of the things we looked at was the water quality impacts associated with the February 2001 event, I think it was. And long story short, big flood event, not as big as the one that you guys have recently experienced, but big flood event. And about 2 million fish and crustaceans and other sort of you know life died within the Richmond River estuary as a direct result of these low oxygen levels. So very similar to what you experienced, oxygen was just sucked out of the river and for, for at least a couple of days, basically no oxygen. So, you know, fish need oxygen to breathe, they died. Because of a flood. Kind of. In 2001, what happened? Yeah, it was a flood event, not as just simple as it's a flood. I'm keen to get your thoughts on this. From what I remember, it was the floodwaters inundated over the floodplain, essentially, you know, the farming land, dairy farms, et cetera, whatever, cattle grazing areas. The floodwaters essentially kill a lot of the uh, vegetation, the grass, et cetera, and that sort of dead decomposing you know, organic matter will drain into the estuary via the drains or in these low-lying floodplains. And that essentially low oxygen water being drained into the estuary results in massive DO uh, drops in the estuary itself and subsequently the, the fish die. Is that what happened in the more, more recent flood event as well? We call black water. It's basically sort of you know low oxygen organic water that's draining into our estuary via these drains after a couple of days of basically sitting on the floodplain. Just to give, I guess, the listeners a bit of a colour. So the catchment's got this massive floodplain, and back in the day it used to be full of trees and birds and all sorts of things. But then, you know, in the early 1900s, they removed all the trees and drained the land so they could farm it. And, you know, that was an intelligent thing to do back in the time. But now we realise that it wasn't that smart at all, you know. <laughs> We've got all these legacy issues of these drains. that You're draining these floodplains. So where the water would naturally just go and sit on that floodplain for days, weeks, months, and then slowly kind of make its way back into the river. That doesn't happen now. The water just goes there, it sits there during the peak of the flood, and then it drains away because of all these drains that have been installed across the floodplain. And so that natural environment that was once there has been replaced by this pasture land. It's intolerant to getting flooded, you know, once it gets inundated with water it dies and it dies within a couple of days whereas the natural vegetation that could sit there that could quite happily be flooded for days weeks months at a time it wouldn't die so it had evolved to be able to withstand flooding so now that we've got these paddocks full of grass and once once they get flooded the grass dies and when, as it's dying it, it exudes all this dissolved organic carbon and there's all the microbes in the water just love that stuff they just gobble it up and eat it and break it down and respire it and in the process of doing that they use up the oxygen in the water to do that so then there's literally no oxygen in the water for the fish there's one more thing to add there which is just that all of the drains have structures on them to stop tidal inundation to stop the seawater coming back in so that when it's dry you don't get salt water coming into areas but those drains basically what they do is they stop the tidal the natural flushing so Normally, a huge area of the river, even if it's not salty um, in normal flow conditions, has a tidal signal. So you have a high, high low tide. The drains stop that. And essentially, what they're doing is they're changing the amount of water that would flush the system. So normally, without um, an impeded drainage system, you'd get a huge volume of water coming in and out of the mouth with every tidal cycle. Whereas now, all the drains, basically, it's like cutting off the lungs of the system, you know, cannot take a full breath, it cannot breathe out. So the amount of water coming in and flushing it is reduced. 
So to answer Jeremy's point, you asked whether this you know, fish kill was due to flooding. It kind of is in some way. Like yeah, obviously yeah, with yeah. flood, you get organic matter just deposited into the estuary, a whole bunch of dirt, you know, which, which reduces uh, light penetration for water, which reduces the ability to photosynthesize and produce oxygen. But it's the nature of the floodplain management, the land use, the drains, which really exacerbates water quality issues within the estuary during a flood. And that has a probably a, a, almost a bigger impact on the water quality and the subsequent uh, fish kills. Just from listening to you guys, my summation of this is that we've built a system that's not working now for Lismore. A hundred years ago, when they dried out the land to farm it and we've set up this drain system, and as you've just explained, well, in a flood event, this is going to happen again. So I don't know people have lost a huge amount of Lismore, whether personally or life loss, whatever. But let's just talk about the ecological impact on this. On Are we happy that in two years' time we're going to lose another two million fish? Is there something that we can do to the catchment to minimise the impact both on humans but also on the ecology side? Is there something that can be done? Are you, are you guys in your think tank right now going, what can we do to help this more? <laughs> yes, we are. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. <laughs> we, we had a bit of a, an interesting day a couple of weeks ago for natural resource managers in the area. One of the local councils got an eco-psychologist who I didn't know these things existed. One of the comments that come up during the day was let swamps be swamps, you know, and that's you know, the whole of the floodplain on the northern rivers is a swamp. It was a swamp. It still is a swamp. But we live on this swamp. We farm on this swamp. We don't let the swamp be a swamp. It's tricky. A lot of the swamp area, the Tuckian and these areas that were once these massive, actually blue carbon areas, were are so subdivided. So the, the method that I talked about last time I chatted with you guys is ideal for giving funding to, to restoration, to opening the floodgates. It's exactly what it's for, right? Landowners get paid to open the floodgates, turn it back into a swamp. So there's definitely landowners in that area looking at it. There's some I know of one project that's, you know, they're trying to get off the ground to, to restore areas of that. And it's awesome that it not only is great for biodiversity, but it's also great for flood mitigation. Lismore's upstream from a lot of those impacts from this area, right? If you open one floodgate, you might affect 200 landowners. It's incredibly complicated. And there's they're not just landowners, they're fifth generation sugarcane farmers and that's what, who they are and you can't just make them disappear and also the issues then extend way up to the top of the catchment where we have a whole bunch of different issues riparian zones 
that are just completely degraded. We've got deforested slopes so that you're getting huge landslides and soil losses. Yeah, the volume of soil lost from an event like this of valuable farming land. Catchment scale issues is definitely what we're thinking about and it's going to be complex. The solutions that you guys are proposing or at least discussing, uh, you know, catchment-based solutions, you know, letting the system essentially regenerate back to its previous form in terms of a natural environment. I think it was previously called the big scrub. That whole area was completely forested. You know, the lower floodplain was a swamp environment, et cetera. And it does make sense for a bunch of reasons, ecologically, you know, flood mitigation. Like if I look at the, you know, talk about the, the waterways, the streams, you know, if we can improve riparian vegetation coverage in those areas, obviously that's going to slow down a flow, absorb more water, at least in the small to medium to large events. And obviously if we can have the lower sort of flood plain acting like more like a sponge, like a big swamp environment, you know, that'll certainly help the water quality impacts as well. And obviously just all these things build resilience into any sort of estuarine. So whilst we're focusing on the water quality impacts associated with this big flood event, just that day-to-day sort of water quality catchment management activities certainly have a big impact on the waterway ability to recover from these more extreme events. You know, we've talked about the black water, but talking about an acid sulfate soil environment, you know, with acidic water will drain out of these drains in more sort of smaller events as well. So that, all these little things is like death by a thousand cuts. And then when you get walloped, you're far more likely to just basically fall in a hole. You know, whereas if you had a little bit more sort of strength and health in your system, it bounces back a lot quicker as well. From a purely ecological perspective, but certainly there's people and property benefits as well. I just want to throw in something else. It actually came out of just a corridor chat here at the uni with um, another researcher, Dr. John Grant. Have to give him kudos for this. <laughs> He's been like kind of hassling me because he knew that we were out on the river not long after the flood and we were collecting samples. And he wanted to know how much soil was in the water, basically. We were looking at a few things. I'll throw two concepts out. So there's this massive amount of soil getting into the river from the upper catchment. So all of the little creeks going through farms that get, have cows eroding the banks and stuff like this. So there's a lot of soil. And then the landslides, defrosted slopes, huge amounts of soil getting into the water. And then what's happening is microbes are processing that soil and releasing it as greenhouse gases, breathing it out as carbon dioxide. Yeah. So the river during a flood event actually becomes a massive source of greenhouse gases. So I think that's just one interesting thing to highlight because it gives another incentive, like as if we needed another one, but <laughs> that carbon is a great thing for monetizing uh, restoration. So I guess that's where my brain went when I realized that these flood events are a massive source of greenhouse gases just because of that erosion. And that erosion is something that we want to avoid for heaps of reasons already. And then one more thing to throw to that is that the soil in the river actually contributes to part of of the mass of the river. So when I crunch the numbers on the dissolved sediments in the water, it's actually contributing about 5% of the total mass of the water, right? So we can assume about 5% yeah. of the volume. Uh, yeah. The river depth at the peak of that flood from the bottom of the river to the top is about 20 metres. 5% of that is a metre. So if there was no dirt in that river 
hypothetically, the river would have been a metre lower than what it was. That is fascinating. That is so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Like, so some flood mitigation, I'm just throwing it out there. These are back of the yeah. calculations, people. That's okay. Well, but, um, but look, it makes sense. You're adding mass to the river and depth and flow volumes. And like, you know, to Jeremy's, or, and I think there's a, we've made it a few times, you know, what's the solutions? Obviously, the, to make it, uh, let the swamp act like a swamp, return to a natural system. But we're talking about people and property. So exactly. So can we just go and say, let's you know, make a swamp a swamp, and then there's 20 to 100 farmers out there that all have to agree to do that and you're you're messing with all those people's lives is that actually achievable well my point to that was it would be very difficult without an incentivization and what james is referring to is the, the potential financial incentive associated with the carbon benefits associated with some of these actions you know how do you incentivize a farmer to, to adopt a different farm. practice yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Financial benefits need to be way more than carbon. And we're actually seeing that with the blue carbon method. So it's only viable. Blue carbon restoration is actually currently only viable for big areas, big landowner areas. We want it to be viable for and competitive against other land users. And to do that, we need to stack the biodiversity benefits, the water quality benefits, the carbon benefits. We need to stack all of these ecosystem services and give people a real world. It's actually something that's really valuable to us having a clean, healthy river, clean, healthy ecosystem. Like we need to put the money there that it's worth. And I guess that's our job as scientists is to develop systems that show the worth, the value, so that we can get them monetized. How do you incentivize that? How do you put a dollar value on the intrinsic benefits of doing these works and then actually provide that to a potential farmer or property owner? What about the, the numbers that you crunched on the greenhouse gases? To give you an idea on how much CO2 was coming out of the water in such a small event in the overall scheme yeah, of the world, yeah, yeah, yeah. some massive carbon capture storage system over in Europe yeah, or something? Yeah. What, what was the... So just in the flood alone, so looking at like a, a two-week window, I'm, I'm just doing calculations based off that two weeks, the emissions from the river were about 25,000 tonnes of CO2. So compare that to the biggest carbon sequestration plant on Earth, which is the Orca, which is up in Scandinavia. That's drawing down about 4,000 tonnes a year. So in two weeks, we lost like 25,000 tonnes of of carbon as methane and, and carbon dioxide. So like, it is a big event. and I think by putting in the scale, it helps people. Yeah. And just your reaction yeah. there, going, yeah. shit, that, wow. We've got that's a lot. That's a lot. That's, yeah, yeah. 70,000 cars running for a year. That is amazing. 70,000 cars running for a year. Yeah. So obviously there's a financial incentive go. for this, this, this right. carbon sequestration plant. You know, overseas. But restoration of other types of systems, like I know the blue carbon restoration well, and there are lots of different organizations, platforms out there in the world that are able to put dollar values on biodiversity and not just carbon. So the thing is companies now, they want to be green, like, and that's where the money is. It's actually not really the governments that are doing it. It's it's businesses, it's individuals that are putting serious money, billions, into restoration of, of natural habitats, knowing that they can, you know, combat climate change and combat biodiversity loss, which are the this is the crisis we're facing, you know. So humans realizing that we're it's crunch time are starting to do it. I think if we can just work out clear valuation of of the services, there's going to be money there. 
Yeah, we've always said this on the show, you know, capitalism has got a, a very big part to play in fixing our environment. If we leave it up to governments, as you can see, we're fumbling over each other. The private sector, and it's sort of like Ocean Protect, we stop, you know, eight or ten tonne of pollution going out to the ocean every single day or into our waterways. But we make money from, from doing that. We pay taxes. We employ over 40 staff and their families. And we make money, and we're proud to do that. We get out of bed going, boom. Now, if you rewind five, ten years ago, sort of frowned upon if, if you were making money off the environment. You were sort of like, oh, hold on, what are, what are these guys doing? You know, this, but whereas now, the, the importance of fixing this huge problem, we need to throw time, effort, and the big thing is, is money at this. We, you know, we, we, we need to do it. If you guys had a magic wand, okay, and talk, don't, talk about, don't worry about politics, how would you approach this? Give me an elevator pitch. How would you guys approach fixing up the problem that we've currently got in the catchment of Lismore? Forget about money. What would you do? It'd be great just to let it be what it always was, you know, that it open the floodgates. You know, it just start in small little pockets and see what a difference that makes. And if you start upstream, you can pocket there, pocket there, pocket there, pocket there, pocket there, and then to see what the effects. Because, I mean, let's face it, we're going to have not hopefully not another major event like that, but we're going to have other events that you can test that those theories on. You know, there's been a lot of Band-Aid solutions going on over the years, you know, and they're all good. They all work. They all can make a contribution for sure. But it's kind of like now something big has to be done. You know, it's got to have something to do with these floodplains. Let the water sit there for a bit longer. Let it sit there like it always did. Let the vegetation change to tolerant vegetation, to wetland vegetation. And then, you know, all this is going to take a lot of time. But I, I think that's, there needs to be a radical change. So all these little Band-Aid solutions, they're great. Um, and they do do their bit, but there needs to be like a radical change. If, if we really want to improve the quality of the river. That's the lower. We need to nail the, like, reef the swamps and get na- native habitat back on the floodplains. And in the upper, we just need to re-vegetate the riparian zones and the slopes because the Lismore rivers are always brown. They're always full of dirt. And that's upper catchment management. It needs to be cohesive the whole way up. The question is, though, how do you achieve that, though? So, yeah, you're saying let's make the... The swamp sack like a swamp, have the upper catchments more naturalised. How do you actually achieve that? If I'm a farmer on the, in the floodplain in the lower part of the Richmond estuary, um, Mitchell and James comes knocking on my door saying, hey, talk about all the wonderful benefits associated with letting this area act like a swamp. How do you convince me or how do you encourage me to allow that to happen? You need a big checkbook, wouldn't you? Yeah, money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, start buying land back. I don't know if this is, if it's, I mean, it's obviously possible, but whether the community or the, the Australian people want to pay for that. But these systems like blue carbon credits for the lower stuff, you know, like getting credit systems, biodiversity credits, you know, they are, they're coming, they're close. Definitely people working on biodiversity credit systems for Australia. In Queensland, I think you can get, biodiversity credits in some land types i'm not sure you know like it's happening because it needs to happen so i do think that we can develop uh, frameworks that will allow people to be paid the money they need to to allow their land to go from primary production of something yeah to have some at least some natural vegetation put back on it and a different focus you know this is where you guys come into the picture and you guys are trying to crunch the numbers trying to work out the potential ben- benefits of associated with doing that and 
ultimately try and put a, a dollar value on those benefits. That's what I was about to say, guys. And Mitch, you, you touched on it before. It's a, it's a complex, hard issue and radical change is going to need to happen. But that's going to take people like yourself being brave and the decision makers above us all being brave. We can't fix something and, as you say, keep putting Band-Aids on it. We've got to make bold, assertive and, and smart decisions now. Otherwise, we'll be sitting back on this podcast in two years' time going, oh, fuck, we're here again. We may very well be doing it, asking you, hey, how is this fun event? And that, that, that might just happen. Well, ultimately, we've got to make major changes because these things are going to occur more often and they're going to be bigger and bigger and bigger until we can calm this planet down. So I hate to put it on your shoulders, guys, but, you know, get busy, start crunching some numbers <laughs> and, and um, let's start taking that up because that's where it comes from. It comes from you guys on the ground to go, well, you know, how do we solve this? And ultimately it goes to recommendations and task force and whatever, but it comes down to you on the ground. So be brave, boys, get the problem sorted and um, next time we get you back on the show, we'll, we'll be able to talk about all the wonderful work you've done. Yeah, no, thanks. Thank you. We will. Well, we are. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, is this the focus of your work, though? Like Jeremy's asking you to be brave, but I guess you, the, the science comes before, you know, getting too gung-ho. And, and obviously you guys are scientists, so this is what you're trying to work on as we speak. Yeah, look, I leave credit where credit's due. So the, the New South Wales government and Southern Cross Uni are actually funding, joint funding my position to look at water quality in the Richmond. So, you know, things are happening in this space. You know, we're, we're collecting, in our game, you've got to collect data and you've got to base things on data and it takes time to get data. You know, we got, we're starting to get this really big data set and try to understand the water quality issues in the, in the, and we're documenting it. So, it is all happening, but it just takes time. If I can play devil's advocate for a sec, my consultancy company, we did an estuary processor study 20 years ago. Subsequent to that, there was an estuary management plan. And I think even when we were doing the estuary processor study, there was something like a water quality data from 100 monitoring points, like 11,000 monthly data sets on all different water quality indicators, all different uh, locations up and down the uh, estuary. And to the best of my knowledge, almost nothing's happened in terms of improving the management of the estuary. Something needs to change. To Jeremy's point, it's probably not just about collecting more data and getting more science. I think some bold decisions and actions need to be done. And my optimism is buoyed by James saying change is coming in terms of the incentivization space. Basically, I'm just impatient. I just want to see it happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think most of our and I think most of our generation does. You know, mum asked me when this last election was who you're voting for. And I said, well, you know, it doesn't really you know, it matters, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's your generation which is running the show running the yeah. show at the moment, you know. But yeah. So I think there needs to be radical changes in the government as well, you know. There's got to be – our generation has to get more of a say or which – and I think it happened. I think we did that in the election. When I say we, I, I'm, I didn't vote, but that was a <laughs> well, – I can't vote. But what I'm saying is the Australian public certainly did that because it's no longer a two-party preferred basis in, in, yeah. in Australia. People went, you know what, I don't like you, Labor – or you liberals, because none of you are talking about climate change. And the whole election campaign, sorry to get political, there wasn't too much on climate change. Now, there wasn't too much uh, in, in regards to that. And that sort of fell by the wayside. And you, you were, the liberals got smashed and, and then Labor got in. But a lot of independents around the country got in. And if you look into the why, because they talked about the issues that face us, which are the biggest issue is climate change. So I think we have started that, to your point, Mitch, but you're right. Well, fundamentally, we need to make some changes because the, the data is the data is the data. But ultimately, if you're giving that data to a nuffy, 
who makes a decision based on you know what their political processes, then ultimately, what's the point of the data? I mean, it's something has to change, and, and I'm encouraged. We just it has to, otherwise, we're all stuffed. You know what I mean? Let's talk about climate change for a sec, because obviously we focus a lot on the management of the of the catchment and the estuary itself, but thinking. Bigger picture, you know, whatever we do in the catchment in terms of making a swamp like a swamp and the, you know making the upper catchment more natural, the the looming elephant in the room is the climate change in terms of the increased severity and frequency of these events. If you had the ear of the the governments of the world or Anthony Albanese, our, our current prime minister, what are you saying to these guys? I think what we're facing is we have to make hard decisions now. We have to make actual sacrifice you know right now for the future which is we just so terrible at that all of us and i think all around the world there's individuals organizations governments all the scales are just procrastinating on this we're just procrastinating on climate change and i listened to an interesting podcast in the u.s about a whole town that's like gonna go on hold on on. so you listen to other people's podcasts you you've obviously already gone through the 130 episodes of the ocean protect podcast broadening your horizons it's okay okay. there are other podcasts we've we we hear you know Sorry, and I guess it just made me think so basically this whole town the government wanted to plan for retreat and the town fought so hard against that plan for retreat because it meant that they had to pay now for what's coming tomorrow if houses in the were in the zone that had to retreat at some point would then devalue now insurances don't like that you know all of these different scenarios are basically the same thing we just cannot bring ourselves to pay now for tomorrow. And we kind of have to. So governments to make those calls, it's hard, you know, because to be the leader to say, right, we're going to start cutting agricultural areas and, you know, primary production in areas and, you know, just really hurting individuals, you know, they're going to be not liked and they're probably going to get kicked out. So actually making change by governments is is super tough. Almost like a just the problem of our species is that we just are terrible at that. We have to push. And when you said about the numbers and you doing that study, how you know ten years ago, twenty, or, 20 years, twenty years ago, um, you look younger than that. But um, I'm a preteen Swedish boy. You know? hey, hey, but just go back to your comment, but we do have to push. We have yeah, to push yeah. as individuals to make change happen, right? And I think it's really motivating to be like, right, we're in a serious situation. We want our children to be able to live a quality of life that we're living. We have to start pushing to whatever way we can, whatever capacity we can to, to make change in every way, I reckon. You said a comment before, which was pay now and to get a benefit, you know, for the future. The problem is... We're in the buy now, pay later state. <laughs> that, that we are where we are. That's exactly we are as a gen- generation. We're, we're interested in yeah. that. So we, that's the change we've got to make. And it's weird that we're the only species that acts that way. If I'm honest, like uh, I think a lot more, a lot of other species think more holistically. And and we had a wonderful conversation about sacrifice uh, at our last podcast chat, James. You remember we talked about how radical change was needed, and we started talking about veganism. And you're like, oh, it's so hard. I'm not sure. I'm like, oh, <laughs> hang on. <laughs> so I guess my question to you, James. How's the plant-based diet going? Yeah, this is It's a great question. I thought we might have some veganism again. <laughs> I'm feeling. 
Now, look, I've definitely been uh, actively thinking about veganism. <laughs> oh, I was only thinking about it. That makes the cows of the world real, real, feel real much better, you know. <laughs> no, I've actually been reducing my meat intake. I still eat eggs. I've just been doing my best on that front. I do think it's an important one. Yeah, it's super inconvenient for me. I'm being facetious, obviously. Yeah, like we, we talk about radical change and we do need to make sacrifices. And look, politicians are damned if they do, damned if they don't in terms of, you know, you can imagine a politician saying, okay, we're just going to put a 50% levy on all air travel. We're going to increase car registrations by $1,000 a year, et cetera. You know, we're going to put an excise on beef, uh, chicken, eggs, whatever. You can imagine how that would go down like, not just through the individual consumers, but Let's face it, big industry. There's a lot more interest in keeping the status quo than there is about actually making change. That's the unfortunate reality. But the more we can sort of tap in to, I guess, the capitalism side of things in terms of, you know, providing financial incentives for these changes, et cetera, for me, that's a real positive, you know, em- almost embracing capitalism, focusing on, I guess, the benefits associated with these so-called sacrifices, possibly, to recognize that we will benefit later in the future. Currently, we just do not have the luxury of the status quo. We have to change. And if we don't, in 30 years, 50 years' time, our generation's just going to look at us going, what a bunch of selfish so-and-sos. Mate, 100%. I don't know if you turned on the news this morning, but did you see that the Supreme Court has stripped the federal government of the US uh, of their power to set climate um, standards? Mm. So basically the Supreme Court has said, Biden, you can't do shit. I mean, what is going on? Anyway. But anyway, look, I feel as though, again, I feel as though we could talk yeah, these yeah, guys forever. Yeah, come back, I reckon. I mean, I'm talking about Jimmy, but Mitch can come back. <laughs> no. He'll be vegan in most months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, yeah, I, yeah. I must say, it's, it really has been fascinating talking to you guys. Like, and total... Like on behalf of the Lismore community, thank you so much yeah. for all your efforts yeah, and also you. for the wider efforts for everyone who's helped out with recovering uh, from the floods, but also obviously the immediate sort of saving of lives and property is completely amazing and, and, and needs to be celebrated. And so t- total hats off to everyone involved in the rescue and recovery efforts. Also, I'm really excited to know that you guys are sort of in this space of doing the, the blue carbon and counting, trying to better understand the the catchment, the estuary and how to better manage it. I'm genuinely really excited about seeing what science comes out of you guys in the future. I'm really hoping that'll drive significant change in this space. Cool. Likewise. Yeah. You're a yeah. couple of legends, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, keep up the great work. Thanks for coming on our show. We're going to just have to get you back on again to chat more. So um, boom, boom. thanks again. Shake the room. Thank you. Cheers, thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.